I want to thank everybody that was here, especially those in the blue shirts, uh, people that showed up early and helped set up and greet worship team. Um, so good to be back together today. Um, and everybody coming out, it's, it's, it really is a gift to worship, and it's days like this that we're kind of reminded of that fact. So um, if you want a fancy blue shirt that says Cordova Church of the Nazarene, here's what you have to do. Volunteer. Um, <laughs> we have space for you to help out. And so um, I, will, I will make sure that you get a shirt. Um, and when I, I mean K. When I say I, I mean K. Uh, we'll make sure that you get a shirt if you are willing and able to kind of help in some of those areas. So um, we're going to start a new sermon series today. We're going to start preaching through the book of Zechariah. Um, uh, Zechariah is a what they call a minor prophet, um, just because his book is a little shorter than some of the others. That's the only reason that they call it minor. Um, if you are interested, I put an insert in the bulletin because this is the stuff that... Um, gets my little nerd brain going. And so if I don't write it down and give it to you, I'm going to say it from up here. And I'm trying not to say all the boring history stuff. So it is in an insert in your bulletin. Um, it's actually not boring. Uh, you should read it. Uh, and so it'll be kind of there for you. You're welcome to grab that, reflect on that. Um, but we are going to read today from our gospel reading, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amen. Well, um, I'm going to... Sorry, Logan. I'm moving you out here. Um, when I was... Eight or nine years old, um, as laying in bed, mom and dad come in, pray with me, and as they're on their way out, I, I remember asking my mom, "Mom, is this a sin?" I forget what I said. I, it was along the lines of like, if I if I mess up, but I don't know I'm messing up, or I do it on accident, right? You like make a mistake. Is that a sin? No, no, that's not a sin. I went, "Oh, okay, that's good." I thought to myself, 
I got nothing to confess. I got, that was my one doubt, was that I had kind of made this mistake, and I didn't know, maybe I need to confess that. And I just, at that, she told me that wasn't a sin, and it was like, well, good, I got, I got no sins. I'm, I'm going to bed happy tonight. I'm like, perfectly good, clean slate. Um, <laughs> I am all set. And I genuinely remember thinking at that moment, like, I'm, I'm good for the rest of my life. Like, I don't see myself ever messing up again. This is going to be great. I'm just going to kind of ascend on into the heavens here. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. We think about, <laughs> we think about sin um, as individual acts, right? Individual things that we do that then need to be confessed or repented and sort of scrubbed off of our conscience, right? So sin is essentially like, or sorry, confession rather, is basically doing the laundry, right? You get stuff on your shirt, you drop mustard off your hot dog or whatever, and you got to get that off of the shirt. And so, so you take off the clothes and you change clothes and you even put those in the laundry and you clean it up, right? And some of our sins are like that. There's like this stuff that sticks in your head. It's like that one time I did that thing. <laughs> when I said that word to that person I love, when I that person up on the highway, on purpose. I mean, these, these things that stick out in our mind as these sort of biggies that need to be confessed. Things we do on purpose, right? And I, I guess it's true in that case, right? Those things do, in fact, need to be confessed. But that's not the fullness of what confession is. That's not the fullness of what it is to live in the light of God's grace, because there are certain reasons you do laundry. Sometimes you do it because you drop mustard on your shirt, but sometimes you do it because that white t-shirt you've been wearing for three days is like just kind of gray, a little bit more of like a dress. Now it's just sort of like lengthened and widened. It just gets sort of, you know, out of shape. Right. Sometimes laundry is about getting out of stain, and sometimes laundry is about like putting your clothes back together. <laughs> a little bit. But even more, I want to say, confession is actually less like laundry. Let's see if this is going to work. Can you click into the slideshow there? Make sure this slides. There we go. Hey, all right. Confession is less like laundry. It's actually more like eating healthy. <laughs> to confess before God. <laughs> you don't like that, Rosalie? To confess before God is to continually make small choices that are ultimately about our long-term health and presence before the Lord. Am I whole? Or am I putting things into myself that are going to eat me from the inside out? Am I putting things into my body, into my mind, into my spirit that are ultimately going to tear down and destroy me? That maybe that particular thing is not going to kill me, right? But it's going to lead to something that is destructive. Maybe that particular choice or that particular attitude, maybe it's just a little bit of anger. Maybe it's just a little bit of self-righteousness or a little bit of cowardice. And we think it's not that big of a deal. That's how everybody is. We all stumble and fall. But the truth is those things, as they build up, they become corrosive, and they eat us from the inside out. So, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that most of us are kind of past most of the quote-unquote biggies in our lives, right? 
I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but the hope is, and, and my, my sort of attention here this morning, is not necessarily toward confession of the soul, like, man, I got this big thing I've never told anybody that I've kept to myself. It's a little bit more in that I'm eating donuts for lunch every day, right? I'm making decisions on the regular that are ultimately going to wear me out and eat me from the inside out. What most of us deal with is that kind of grinding, slow, attitudinal arc where sin has its hooks in us in that way. As I was thinking about this week, I just kind of wonder why. Why are we okay with that? Why do we live like that? It's so easy for us to see in other people how their bad or negative attitude is leading them into a corrosive, broken life. I can point it out in all of you, actually. (laughs) But I have a lot more trouble pointing it out in myself and living in myself according to that way that I can see so easily in other people. Right now we're sort of in this place and here we are returning back inside and the phrase that's out there is like business as usual, right? Or we're going to return to normal somehow. And I I don't know. I'm thinking about us as a culture and I'm not so sure it's good for us to return to normal. I don't know if normal in, when was normal? February 2020? I don't know that we were so holy in February 2020 or so good in February of 2020 that all of a sudden that's what we need to get back to. That's like some heights for us to ascend to or something for us to aspire to. This idea of returning to normal, I'm not actually sure normal is that great. But we haven't reflected on that. We haven't thought about what we would rather return to. Sometimes I wonder if we keep saying we're going to return to normal simply because we can't imagine returning to anything else. The story of the prodigal son, beautiful story of a return, right? This guy essentially wishes that his father would be dead. He says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your inheritance now. Fine. Dad says, splits up his property into two, not equal shares, because this is the younger son, but he still splits it up, gives the younger son his portion. The younger son, it says, goes off to a far country and spends it all in reckless living. Reckless living. Throws it away. Parties, friends, you can buy a lot of friends if you got some good money right? They don't last very long, and that's what happens. He, the money runs out, and the parties run out, and the friends run out. And pretty soon, a famine comes, and he has nothing in his hands. He has no one by his side, and he has nowhere to go. So he ends up feeding pigs. Now, this is a big deal if you're a Jew. <laughs> Jews don't eat pigs. Jews don't think about pigs. Jews don't touch pigs. Jews don't look at pigs. Jews don't do anything with pigs except make fun of him. So the fact that this guy goes to a country, he's not only away from his family, but he is sort of outside of his culture. He's outside of all of the people who care about him, know him, love him. And then he ends up all the way down at the bottom. 
where now he's not only far from the people who love him, but he can't even worship God because he's been rolling in the slop with pigs. He's ritually unclean. He would not be allowed in the temple. He wouldn't be allowed to repent even. He's so hungry. All he wants to do is eat pig food. He's literally lower than a pig. And he says, what am I doing here? My father's servants have plenty to eat. So you know what the word prodigal means. Prodigal does not mean rebellious. It doesn't mean you run away from the people who love you and care about you. It doesn't mean you demand your inheritance. Prodigal means reckless. It means you spend too freely. So that's the prodigal son, because he takes all of this money and he just spends it so freely that he's got nothing left and he ends up in the slop with the pigs, okay? That's why he's prodigal. This is why that matters. He returns and says, I want to go back to my father and I'm not going to be a son. I'm going to be a slave. But he gets to the father. The father runs to meet him, grabs him, pulls him in, hugs him. And the father now is the prodigal one. Because the father should be judgmental. The father should condemn him. But instead of being stingy with his mercy, the father is prodigal with his mercy. He gives him love and mercy and forgiveness that he does not deserve. The son is prodigal with money. The father is prodigal with his mercy. Okay? So, pride, prodigality, consequences, confession, repentance. All right. This is important. <laughs> It's important. It's important because as we look at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah happens at a period, I know I'm sort of holding up two things. You got the prodigal son on one side, and then over here, we're going to back up about 500 years. We've got the Israelite exiles returning to the land. See, what had happened is Israel had been rebellious. They had left God. They had chosen not to follow after him. And God had kept sending people to them, prophets, people who loved them, saying, this is how you ought to live. And Israel's going, oh, that seems hard. I'm not going to do it. And they would not do it, no matter how many times God sent people to try to show them the way. So they ended up divided and broken and exiled. Babylon, this empire, current modern-day Iraq, came in, wiped out Israel, tore Jerusalem to the ground, destroyed the temple. Okay, it's just a pile of rubble. And they go to exile for 70 years. 70 years. And all during that time, they're trying to figure out, how should we live? At the end of those 70 years, they actually come back to the land. They come back. God lets them come back. And as they come back, their question is now, what are we going to do? Who are we going to be? How are we going to return? Are we just going to return to normal? We spent 70 years in exile, in quarantine. Now we're coming back into this place that God has given us, this promised land, this space where this temple is meant to be. How are we going to return? Are we going to return and do all of the same stuff that we had been doing? Or are we 
learn to live the way God intended us to live in the first place. And the people who are coming back into Israel are actually leaving a pretty comfortable situation. They had a nice little spot in Babylon. Babylon, as empires go, Babylon was pretty good to the Jews. A nice little place in the suburbs, literally, that's not like a metaphor. There was a little suburb where the Jews could live, and they could live like Jews. They could study the Torah, they could worship when they wanted to worship, although without any temple. They could do the things that God wanted them to do. They were more or less safe, except for the occasional attempt at genocide. That's the book of Esther, okay? But other than that, they were more or less safe there, okay? They come back. Their city's in ruins. Their temple is a pile of rocks. There's no river. In, in, in Israel, you have to depend on the rain. There's no river that supports their crops. They got to just sit there and hope that God sends the rain. That's a hard way to live. It's dry, it's dusty, it's no Babylon. God says to Israel, beginning of Zechariah, if you continue like this, you're in trouble. If you continue to live the way your fathers lived, if you continue to do what your fathers did, you are in trouble. If you go back to normal, you're in trouble. If you go back to the way it was, it's just going to lead you to the same place that you were in the first place. God reminds them in Zechariah 1, 1. <laughs> There's kind of this funny thing, and Betty did a great job of reading it. When I was reading it, I was stumbling all over it. It's like, did he really mean to say that? Hold on, let me find this. Zephaniah, Zechariah. Okay, here we go. Zechariah 1.3. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Who says it? The Lord of hosts, right? Three times he says it. Who is the Lord of hosts? The Lord of hosts is the God of, as the one song says it, angel army. It's the God of the hosts of heaven. That's what the hosts are. He's saying, look, I am the God who stands over not just physical reality, I stand over spiritual reality, and part of that is history and time and events. And I'm in control of all of that, and if you're not going to come under me, and you just want to return to normal, you're going to end up in exactly the same place that you were. Do not be like your fathers who persecuted and killed the prophets, but rather live the way I you to live. In chapter 7, oh man, I was pushing buttons. I didn't mean to push buttons. In chapter 7, a group of these, you don't need to turn there, but a group of these exiles come up to Zechariah and they ask him, they say, Zechariah, We've been fasting in the fifth and the seventh month. We've been doing what we're supposed to do. We've been keeping the fast. We've been, we've been sufficiently um, repentant externally. We've been sufficiently repentant. We're, we're, we're not eating when we're supposed to eat, and we put some sand and dust on our head so that we look really sad. 
We've been doing this for 70 years. Do we have to keep doing it? You know what Zechariah says to him? The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah and he says, have you fasted? Did you do it for me? When you fasted, was it really for me? When you feasted, did you do it for me? To put that in our language, when Lent came around and you decided to give up Reese's peanut butter cups or I don't know, whatever it is, was that really for God? Was that really for the Lord? When you took up some fast and you wanted to say, look, it's, it's time for me to be a confessional person and the song came on and you went, yes, Lord, take my sin, take my guilt away. And God challenges them and he says, was that really for me? Or was there some part of you that was doing that as a show? Was there some part of you that was doing that because that's what everybody was doing? Was there some part of you that was doing that just to get rid of the guilt? Was there some part of you that did that because you thought if you did, it would push some divine vending machine button and you'd get a little grace? You'd get a little buzz? These are hard questions. They are hard questions, and I'm, I'll just, I'm wrestling with them right now. <laughs> okay. But we have got and we do it for the Lord. We do it because we want to be in God's presence. Do we do it because we want to actually follow Christ all the way to the cross? When you feasted, he says, did you do it for me? When you had Christmas dinner and the family came over and the kids opened their presents and you ate like you don't normally eat, you put extra gravy on everything and you even fasted before you didn't eat breakfast so that you'd be ready for that lunch right like you came prepared for the meal ready to feast who is that for was that feast about you and your desire to eat things you probably shouldn't eat or was that feast about celebrating God's richness and glory and goodness and the love that he has lavished upon us. And so we eat in celebration of that unending goodness because he's a good, good father. You see the difference? We can fast. We can even fast down to nothing and it can still be for us. We can feast and we can just feast until we pop still be for us. God has called us into both of those things, but if we do them for ourselves, we do us no good. What did he tell these guys who come in chapter 7? He says, do justice. Do justice. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. 
and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But, it says, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. This is the line that's been working on me this week. They made their hearts diamond hard. They made their hearts diamond lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. I hope you don't have diamonds in your heart. I hope your heart is not diamond hard. True judgments, kindness, mercy, no oppression, not devising evil. All right. Not us. So I'm going to tell you a secret. The only tools I have to get you to do what I want you to do, me and myself, Jeff, you know, this guy right here, the only tools I have are exactly the tools that I just talked about. Cultural compliance, right? I can stand up here and say, this is what everybody's doing. Everybody else is confessing. I can't believe you haven't confessed yet. This is what we do. This is our culture. We are a confessing people, right? And you're like, oh, well, maybe that's true. And I'm sitting here. I better get with it. I need to soften that old heart so I can be like everybody else's. Or I can guilt you and I can say, Jesus really wants you to confess. And he's really, really mad at you. And if you don't confess, you're going to be a bad, bad boy and a bad girl. And you need to feel bad about it. Okay? Or we can go mechanistic divine satisfaction. I made up that term. It sounds good to me. Okay? God's a vending machine. I'm going to go confess and I'm going to push the I'm sorry button. I'm going to pull the I'm sorry lever. I'm going to sing reckless love. Um, I'm not picking on these songs. These are really great songs. Uh, but, but what I mean is we can come to that without actually softening our hearts without actually changing anything internally. And all of those tools, that's all I got on you. That's all I have, me personally, to make you confess. And none of it's good enough. I can pull and push all those levers and buttons. But if you don't want to be made new, if you don't want to be made whole, it won't do you any good. If you don't want to confess, if you don't want to turn, if you don't want your heart to be go from diamond to flesh, it will do you no good. What you need, what I need, is the way of the child. Way of the child. was ruined. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, we, 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 need, we need to be like the prodigal son who comes back to his father. He says, Dad, I can't be your son anymore. The things I've done to you, the way that I've turned on you, the way I represented this family, the way I represented you to the world, I'm, Dad, I cannot be your son. I need to be close to you, but I can't be your son. 
I need to be in your house, but it can't be as an heir. I need to just be a slave. Dad, make me a slave. Pay me minimum wage to go pick beads in the field. Make me a dishwasher, whatever. Like, just keep me around you. Keep me close. The father says, no. The father says, I'm not going to make you my slave. I'm not going to make you a servant. It doesn't matter who you've been or how much pig slop you have on you. You are my child. And so we're going to bring out the good robes. And we're going to kill the good calf. And we're going to invite the neighbors. And I don't care how shameful you think you are to me. We're celebrating you. Because you were lost and you're found. And that's God to Israel. That's Zechariah to Israel. I just want you to be my child. And that's God to us. Return to me, and I will return to you. Normal is a terrible target. Trying to be normal is a waste of time. Trying to be faithful, to be found in God's presence, to be wrapped up in that embrace. That's where life is. But if we want to break our diamond hard hearts, here's the thing about confession. It doesn't just take, tears are good. Tears are actually a good start. <laughs> but it doesn't just take tears. When we confess, confession seeks its opposite. So here's what I mean. When I say I'm sorry, Morena, I did not wash the dishes again. Sweetie. Um, not today, this week, okay? Uh, <laughs> right? Like that, that confession does no good unless I go wash the dishes. Confession seeks its opposite. So you take the thing that needs to be confessed, and you're going to look for an, something you can put your feet to, something you can put your hands to, where you have oppressed people, where you have oppressed others. There's a requirement that you then go seek justice on their behalf where you've been involved in somebody's ill, it's required then that you go seek their good. Not because that's somehow going to save you, but because that ultimately is the state of your heart. No longer diamond hard, but is instead flesh. Confession seeks its opposite. Where you've been brutal, that you would seek out a life of mercy. Where you've been hard, that you would seek out ways to be kind. Again, I've said it, when you've been a coward, you'd seek out ways to be courageous. Faithless, you'd seek out ways to be faithful. I mean, take whatever it is, and we're actually going to look to do something with it. So, here's the challenge this week. Because the, the, the trick here in church, like we can do a lot of like emotional manipulation, right? We have good musicians so we can like sing songs and they will make you feel things, okay? And that's, that's all fine. It's good. It's a 
great place to begin. But I'm really serious about this when I say if we don't put our feet to that confession, that it ends up actually hardening us more in the future. It ends up making us harder when we need to confess something for real. It calluses us. So, take that thing that's on your heart or your mind right now and do something about it today. What you need to repent, what you need to confess, put action to that. John Wesley, we've been kind of wrapping up our membership group last, yesterday we wrapped up. Um, talking about John Wesley, he's kind of our church grandpa or whatever. He's, he's so we're in his tradition, okay? And what John Wesley did so well, he never really wrote big books. That wasn't his style. What he actually did really well was he formed these wonderful small groups where people were accountable to each other. And they asked each other really tough questions, like right to the heart. Here's a couple of them. These are the ones that just get to me. There's not all of it. Am I a hypocrite? Right? I dare you to say no. Uh, <laughs> right? Am I a hypocrite? Look somebody in the eye and answer that question. To be honest about it. Can I be To have somebody tell you whether you're trustworthy. Whether you can be trusted with their secrets. Whether you can be trusted to finish projects, whether you, I mean, can I be trusted? Can I really do, do I really do what I say I will do? This one, did the Bible live in me today? Not that I obey what the Bible said, not that I read my Bible this morning. Did it live in me? Can somebody see my life and notice in the way I live the very word of God? Do I pray about the money I spend? Not just the 10% that we give to God, like the other 90%. (laughs) Did I pray about that money? Do I grumble or complain? I I put these up because they get to me, right? I put these up because they cut to my heart. But the point is, is that if we are not soft, if we are not continually in the process of doing the laundry, of eating healthy, of becoming a people who are softened to the word of God, if we don't have a habit regularly, daily, weekly, with people who we care about, who can speak the truth to us, then we end up in that place where we become hard. We end up with our hearts just rock, diamond, hard. The word of God cannot penetrate them. That is a fearful place to be. And it happens all the time, even to people who are in the church. People who are in the church. Here's my vision. I guess my hope, my dream for this place. My dream is that Cordova Church of the Nazarene, I know we're all going to gather together, groups of little two and three around here, to church, and we're going to talk, and we're going to catch up, and we're going to say, wasn't that great, and wasn't that not so great, and you know, we're going to kind of do all these things, and, and that's good. We should have those, that fellowship and that relationship, but here's my dream. What if those little groups of two and three and four and five that gathered together and talked were plotting people's good, where we have previously devised evil in our hearts, and the says, what if instead we were saying, who can we bless this week? Who can I drop some money on? Who needs a meal that I can throw on their doorstep? 
How can I encounter somebody so that they are all of a sudden surprised by the love of God? How can we provoke people to say, what are these people about? They are doing weird things. They are prodigal with their love. They are prodigal with their mercy. They're forgiving people they shouldn't forgive. They're embracing people they have no right to embrace. These people don't go together. Whoever it is, they're not supposed to match, and yet somehow in Christ they match. That is my vision for this place. The Cordova Church of the Nazarene would be a place where people plot love. Where they plot good. And where we root the evil out of our hearts simply because we are so desperate to be with Christ. This is Zechariah's vision, chapter 14. Remember, Israel is a dry, dry place where you just have to wait for the rain if you want to grow any crops. This is the vision God gives him. On that day, on that day, you could even capitalize that D, that big day. Living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. No season, no fire season. And the Lord will be king over all. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain. That's really good for farming. Okay? The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to remote south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. <laughs> right? From 65th Expressway to Sacramento River, up to whatever the northern border of Sacramento is. I don't know. Right? And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This vision that Zechariah has for this place is a place where God's justice comes to reign, where every widow and orphan, everybody who has anything to give, all of a sudden is present in this place, full of God's security, full of God's peace, full of God's wholeness. <sighs> Friends, we are made for that. That is what we're made for. That is what our hearts are are longing for. That's where, where we are hungry to be. I hope we can intend. <laughs> intend not only with our minds or with our hearts, but intend with our hands and our feet this week to confess, to be free from the slop, to be free from everything that holds us down, reminds us of our twisted rebellion. Thanks be to our God who is prodigal with his mercy and with his love. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for bringing us here to this place. Lord, I, as we come to the table this morning, I just want to know maybe there's somebody here who needs to receive you. Maybe they need to receive you for the first time, and maybe they need to receive you all over again. But I want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would prompt us to take steps with our hands and our feet that are going to bring us into that kingdom. That we would be bold enough and courageous enough, Lord. And so if there's anybody here, I, I, mm. <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity to confess. 
So I'm going to kind of ask if you, everybody else would just sort of keep your heads bowed and your, your eyes closed. I, I want to know if, first off, if anybody here needs to receive Jesus, because it would be like actually a problem if I moved past this and didn't ask you this question. Anybody here is like, this is the Jesus that I want to know. This is the Lord who I need to receive, and I've not been part of that kingdom. And if if that's so, I'm going to ask, because it matters what we do with our hands and with our feet, would you raise your hand? If anybody here needs to confess something today, to say, God, I've got something. I need to do some laundry. I need to change the way I'm eating. I need this heart and this life and this body and this spirit and soul to be whole. Thank you. I need to be whole. Thank you, God. Thank you for taking that step. Jesus, for everybody here who confess needs to I pray, Lord God, to see you, to know you, to respond to you, and to take their response beyond their sort of internal self and to take it into the world. Lord, we pray that this church would be a place that confesses you, that seeks you, that knows you, and above all, Lord, that worships you. Not only in name, not just by fasting in the fifth and the seventh month, Lord Jesus, but in our very hearts, our deepest desire is that we would be close to you, that we would be one with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first place that that starts is right here at the table. Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me.